This is First Impressions, and I am your host, Mali Delaghi. This podcast will be weekly or every fortnight. I'll discuss the books that I've read with you. So read along, listen along, and enjoy. Before we start, I'd like to recommend that you read the book before listening to this podcast because it will make a lot more sense and because the book is brilliant and I really enjoy it and you will really enjoy it too. But if not, here is a quick summary and I hope it will make more sense with this than otherwise. So the novel starts off with Emily and her family in a perfect situation. They're wealthy, people around them enjoy their company, they enjoy each other's company. But there are questions that aren't answered, such as a stolen miniature. Then her mother dies and she and her father go on a trip away. And on this trip, they meet Valancourt. Valancourt leaves and then Emily's father sadly dies. Because Emily is now an orphan, she is taken into the care of Madame Sharon. And restrictions are put into her life, such as restrictions from seeing Valancourt. Her auntie, Madame Sharon, marries Signor Montoni, an Italian, and against Valancourt's wishes, they leave to Venice, to where Montoni lives. Here they realise that Montoni is a liar and he is not trustworthy because he was believed to have uh, more money than he did. He seems to be in debt. Montoni orders Emily to marry Count Morano, but Emily refuses. Emily, Madame Montoni and Signor Montoni leave for Adolfo at a very early hour in the morning. There's no explanation given to Emily or Madame Montoni at this point. At the castle of Adolfo, or Udolfo as some people say, Emily makes friends with Annette, Madame Montoni's maid, who is very susceptible to believe that there are supernatural powers in the castle and leads Emily also to believe in these to some extent, although she knows that it can't possibly be true. Murano enters the castle of Adolfo and Montoni denies him Emily's hand. There is then a duel between Montoni and Murano, which leaves Murano very hurt. After this point, we don't hear anything more about him. Adolfo gradually becomes a place for thieves and thugs, increasing the tension and gothic nature of the novel. Montoni becomes more demanding and orders Madame Montoni to hand over the estates that still belong to her following their marriage. But Madame Montoni refuses and is therefore locked up until she dies from a fever, very likely to be induced by the harsh treatment she has received. There is a point where Emily is briefly taken away from the castle because of a siege and then is returned under the careful watch of two of Montoni's assassins, which obviously is very stressful for Emily. Shortly after this, Emily and Annette are helped to escape by their admirers, Lodovico and Count de Vifort, very quickly described over two pages. When they get to France, their ship is almost sunk in a storm, and Emily realises that they have come to where her father died last year. Family connections are realised in the household that they are rescued by, and the abbey where Emily stayed for short amounts of time after her father's death helps her to uncover answers for the mysteries that she has discovered from her time at Adolfo. 
Emily learns that Valancourt has been gambling in Paris and is advised by the Count to distance herself from him. A few short interviews were had between Emily and Valancourt, with none of them ending very well. Emily, now an heiress, returns to La Vallée, her home, and after a while of toing and froing and struggling with her resolutions, Emily and Valancourt are reunited and marry. Right, so I'd like to start off with uh, reading the blurb. Her present life appeared like the dream of a distempered imagination, or like one of those frightful fictions in which the wild genius of the poets sometimes delighted. Reflection brought only regret, and anticipation terror. Such is the state of mind of Anne Radcliffe's orphaned heroine, Emily St. Albert, who finds herself imprisoned in her evil guardian, Count Montoni's gloomy medieval fortress in the remote Apennines. Terror is the order of the day inside the walls of Adolfo, as Emily struggles against Montoni's rapacious schemes and the threat of her own psychological disintegration. A bestseller in its day and a potent influence on Said, Poe and other writers, The Mysteries of Adolfo, 1794, is Radcliffe's classic work of gothic fiction. With its dreamlike plot and hallucinatory rendering of its characters' psychological states, the novel remains a profound and fascinating challenge to modern readers. So at very first glance from the blurb, it sounds like a thrilling book. And that is the truth. This is it's quite an accurate representation of um, the book itself, I'd say. However, uh, Adolfo only features in the centre of the novel, but is surrounded by the struggles and thoughts of Emily. What was really striking throughout the novel was the differences between men and women and how they react to things, how they talk, how they are viewed, which isn't necessarily shocking because it's set in the 16th century and written in the 18th. For a reader nowadays and for a more modern novel, it would be absolutely unacceptable, especially when Montoni has full control over Emily and orders her to marry Count Morano totally against her will, which comes about through a misconception between Montoni and Emily. And through this misconception, Montoni is angered much more by the circumstances because Emily persists to refuse the marriage following her initial acceptance. However, Emily stays strong, which is something I really admire. Let's look at the differences between the men and women throughout the novel. With the women in the novel, such as Emily or Nett, sensibility manifests itself with fits of fainting or weakness. However, in the men, it's more uh, masculine, as you can imagine, in the 16th century. They duel each other or they have some sort of, uh, I'm hopeless and I have to go away and kill myself, which is what Emily fears of Valancourt when she rejects him. However, her sensibility is not all a manifestation of what she imagines and isn't true. When she's led by Bernatine to some very mysterious place where she is uh, in danger, she discovers under a curtain a corpse. Let me read you the extract. It seemed to conceal a recess of the chamber. She wished yet dreaded to lift it and to discover what it veiled. Twice she was withheld by a recollection of the terrible spectacle her daring hand had formerly unveiled in an apartment of the castle, till, suddenly conjecturing, that it concealed the body of her murdered aunt. 
She seized it in a fit of desperation and drew it aside. Beyond appeared a corpse, stretched on a kind of low couch, which was crimsoned with human blood, as was the floor beneath. The features, deformed by death, were ghastly and horrible, and more than one vivid wound appeared in the face. Emily, bending over the body, gazed for a moment with an eager, frenzied eye, but in the next, the lamp dropped from her hand and she fell senseless at the foot of the couch. Not only does this express the, the real danger she was in and the fact that she has reason to feel all of these emotions she's feeling, it shows one of the numerous times she faints. I've been quite critical of the amount of time she faints and I will continue to be critical of the amount of time she faints because it's highly unrealistic, but gives character to the novel and I can see that. In this situation, I think I would faint. If you find the body of a dead person in a curtain in somewhere that you're not supposed to be led by some really dodgy man who's working for your dodgy uncle, then yeah, I would I would follow her lead. Totally. Very reasonable response, I think. To continue with the questioning Emily's sensibility, um, are we questioning it in the right way? I mean, yes. She does need the support of Valancourt when she faints numerous times and awakes in his arms. That is quite a stereotypical let the man save the woman type of environment. And there she does need the physical support of Valancourt because he's nearby and she could risk injury if she falls. But in the grand scheme of things, Emily is very independent and is very able to look after herself. She suffers through so many different traumatic events such as the death of what is her whole family to the loss of the one person Valancourt who could still sustain her happiness. This loss of Valancourt is imposed by herself because she respects herself enough to distance herself from him. That takes strength of mind. And don't forget towards the end of the novel she inherits so many estates. She is wealthy and independent in her own right, and so the loss of Valancourt's fortune is of no consequence to her. She can sustain them both. So along with this strength, she has the strength to doubt others, which normally may not be seen as an obvious part of strength. But in this circumstance, Emily, who is an heiress and is soon to be independent, she needs to have the ability to doubt others, she doubts Valancourt when she discovers that he has been gambling in Paris and loses all, almost all trust in him. She also doubts her father along with Valancourt. Let me read you the extract. You know me then, said Laurentini, and you are the daughter of the Marchioness. Emily was somewhat surprised at this abrupt assertion. I am the daughter of the late Monsieur of St. Albert, said she, and the lady you name is an utter stranger to me. At least you believe so, rejoined Laurentini. Emily asked what reasons there could be to believe otherwise. The family likeness that you bear her, said the nun. The marchioness, it is known, was attached to a gentleman of Gascony at the time when she accepted the hand of the Marquis by the command of her father, ill-fated, unhappy woman. At this point, the reader senses a sort of curiosity that Emily has by being asserted that she's not who she thinks she is she's put in a position where she has to doubt however this ability to doubt is commonly seen as a weakness to doubt what you know however 
when I was reading this, I thought it's quite a strength because as Emily is an independent woman in her own right in the 1500s, it's quite an important value to have. And I thought it was very impressive. The novel ends with a happy ending with the marriage of Lady Blanche and Emily, to who they wanted to marry. And Annette and Ludovico are nicely settled in one of the estates that Emily has inherited. So for all who have experienced tragedy, they have a happy life. Everything is quite the opposite to what it was during the story, which having taken the reader through many events which were very dire. I thought it was quite a relief to have some sense of hope. And like a good friend of mine says, it's not okay, it's not the end, which I think this book sums up very, very neatly. So along with this normal perception of sensibility and how it's a ridiculous concept, which to some extent it can be, uh, we see other famous interpretations of Anne Radcliffe's perspective of sensibility, a famous example being through Catherine in Northanger Abbey. Austen is very critical of this type of sensibility because while Catherine reads the mysteries of Adolfo, she has strange ideas that the captain murdered his wife. There's also a scene where Catherine is is convinced that there is some sort of evil spirit in the room and there's a chest on the other end of the room and she goes over to it and opens it in a frenzy and discovers only a shopping list inside, which is Austin mocking this sort of uh, sensibility and trying to make female writing more believable, more serious and academic. However, there's also another interpretation of this. Perhaps Austin was saying that this popular interpretation of sensibility is what is ridiculous not the female writing which would make a lot more sense however Austin is also known to be a very sarcastic person and it's not inconceivable to believe that she criticized many different people at the same time also it's worth mentioning in the introduction of my copy it says the mysteries of Adolfo is seen as a silly book Uh, and it argues to some extent it is but it's seen as much more silly than it should be. The other thing that it mentions is the many, many times Anne Radcliffe uses the comma, which is very noticeable, but it allows her to put a lot more description in the novel than she would have been able to otherwise without it becoming much slower and and less fluently written. In contrast to the centre of the book at Adolfo, at the end everything seems to be all happy and everything that was lost from the start seems to have been regained, including Emily's trust in Valancourt since they married. Every couple has come together, which nowadays I might think, I was expecting that, it should have been a better ending. But thinking about it now... It's not the expected, traditional, everyone gets married at the end. It's more about how Emily has achieved what she wanted to achieve as an independent woman, which she was denied. Continuing this theme of Emily being strong, 
I think it's important to highlight the fact that when her auntie Madame Montoni denied Montoni her estates, that she has somehow managed to separate only to herself with their marriage, which was a very intelligent move. Emily is ready to give up those estates to save her auntie so that she could barter and get herself out of Adolfo, which at first I thought, oh, don't do that because then you'll give Montoni more power. He might not give you the freedom. It's taking away the status and position you had in life, which is quite unusual for a woman to gain by herself. But I thought it was quite impressive being in a position that Emily is in, it's not believable that she would. She doesn't know her status and what that brings to her. She has full awareness of what giving up the estates would entail. She encourages Madame Antoni to do it anyway because she values family and friendship and emotions more than she does material, such as estates, money, which is quite an amiable stance to take, in my opinion. It doesn't show her weakness as giving up physical possessions. It shows her strength in valuing her own welfare. However, the fact that Madame Montoni was willing to sacrifice herself to save these estates, to be able to pass them on to Emily, also shows a great strength because in not giving the estates to Montoni, she has shown that she has power over him. Emily's sensibility can be seen as making herself more sad than she had to be, which I don't think is a reasonable stance to take because she grapples onto the thought and memory of Valancourt to get her through her time at Adolfo, which is an absolutely atrocious scene. She keeps hearing the music which acts as a motif of her own strength throughout and encourages her and helps her feel resilience through her hardship. Does the music symbolise Valancourt, the one person who could make her happy in the end and attaches her hope to so that she can make it through her time with Signor Montoni? Or does it symbolise her own self-will, which we see when she thinks Valancourt is playing a tune from Gascony and it turns out not to be Valancourt? Is this showing the reader that she's been able to do this by herself without the help of Valancourt all up to this point? I think it is. I hope everyone is safe and well amongst the coronavirus outbreak. It's a very scary time, so make sure that you're washing your hands, staying at home as much as you can and limiting your contact with other people. As for me, my exams have been cancelled, so everything's up in the air at the moment. But on the bright side, I've been able to start this podcast. Sorry that it's come a bit later than I expected. There were uh, problems with my new computer arriving, but everything should be working fine now. You're listening to First Impressions with me, Mali Delaghi. Uh, this week was The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe. Next week will be Now We Shall Be Entirely Free by Andrew Miller. So if you want to, read that book by the next episode and you can listen along. If you would like, you can go and follow the Twitter account for this podcast, which is called First Eye Podcasts.
And also, if you want a bit of extra listening, search up Soho Bites podcast on any podcast platform that you're listening on. It's made by my dad, Dominic Delaghi, and is about the film and lives of Soho, and has very frequently been towards the top of the Apple Podcasts Great Britain film history charts. Thank you. Good night. Thank you.